I don't think that most of us think of ourselves as unloving. I don't, do you sit down and just say, you know, I think I'm a very unloving person? Most people don't think that. Uh, maybe some of you do, and you know. But um, this church, I think, has proven itself time and time again. At least I know our family's been on the uh, end of acts of graciousness and kindness. This church has proven to be a loving church again and again. But we would all agree that we are not yet perfected in love. And uh, in my observations, as I've looked at the church through the years, through its history, particularly in the past, I've seen one of the ways a lack of love has been most shown is in this area of wrongful judging. Um, I'd even look back to some of the problem moments in the church's history, difficult times. And you look at it, you find proud, negative judging that is going on more than really anything else that would create disunity, would create an atmosphere of distrust. And so this is a subject that really has pastoral merit. It's one that we need to understand and we need to linger on for it's persisted as a problem and I think it will likely um, be a problem again in the future. As I've said before in a couple of these messages, we have a lot of pride in our opinion, our opinions and we tend to block out things that we don't really want to be true in forming those opinions and often those opinions are negative about other people and that can be very harmful to relationships and to a church. It's not just about celebrating meat or celebrating a day. Um, we really can disagree on a whole array of smaller issues. It's more about how we think about each other in those disagreements. The church leadership here at Hope Bible has been hurt, hurtfully judged, multiple times. I wouldn't care to try to count them. Sometimes we're put in a situation where there's no possible way to defend our decisions or the way we treated somebody because you'd have to lay out dozens of actions that were taken and that will expose confidences and there's just no way to do it. And so uh, you just have to bury it and yet people go on. They talk, they spread gossip, they make the leadership look bad. They'll give a couple of facts, but not other facts. Um, so it's a hurtful thing. Um, in the area of leadership, I know people that are leaders, when they talk about the most distasteful part of church leadership, it probably would be that, because they look in the wake of the damage that is done from that judging, and they see all of the destruction, and... Um, they wonder, well, why am I doing this? You know, it seems so unjust and unfair. The pattern is pretty predictable, though. You could see it happen again and again. Some church members see something that they don't like in the church. Well, that's not hard to find. Um, they get only one side of the story to a problem. They don't give their brother or sister the benefit of the doubt. They take the posture that their position is better, they were more righteous, they should never have been treated that way. Then they defend their sinful attitude, not realizing how proud their attitude is. They defend it, they engage in a certain amount of chatting, talking, what we would call gossip, and then they leave. And then others are left to wonder, what happened with so-and-so? And then they hear bits and pieces of a story and it sounds very much like someone else was really bad towards them. We had an usher here once whose mannerisms, I guess the best way to put it, we'd call it, were uncouth, <laughs> rather rude, if you can believe that. 
for an usher. Um, and we were patient with this man, um, but he was a proud man. We tried to figure out ways to approach him. We talked to him about it. Don't do this, do that. Eventually, he had to be approached, and we feared, of course, that he would not receive the correction well. And we were right, he did not. His family did not. They were angry, blamed the church. Church is not loving. Church didn't understand. And, of course, they, they left. And that's the side of the story that probably most people will end up hearing uh, through the years. Another incident, I remember we were dealing with a member who was already upset the church, disagreed with the church about X, Y, and Z, was in the process of leaving to another church, had already visited other churches, asked for a meeting, and the meeting didn't happen. Why not? Well, what would be heard is, well, they didn't care to meet with us, but what's not heard is how many meetings there had already been and how little this person had actually listened to anyone in leadership, how difficult they were to teach, other extenuating factors, and what you hear is, well, they didn't want to meet, they didn't care. And you could take stories like that, and you could multiply that throughout church's history, and damage is done through the years. It takes, it takes people to try to really understand what, what are the facts, and who do I trust, and what do I believe? Because these are real happenings, and they hurt congregations. Our congregation is not special. Um, these happen again and again in other congregations as well. You sit down and talk with uh, pastors about their experience at a congregation, and you'll see there's no church immune from this. People are people everywhere you go in the world. And our pride in our opinions, our desire to be right, our wanting to be treated in such and such a way, our dislike of other people, all leads us to form opinions, slant the truth, twist meaning, and then leave in such a way that it looks like someone else had treated us wrongly. We're hoping that from our study of Romans chapter 14, we gleaned, at least I really hope, we gleaned some truth about how bad judging can be, getting, judging the motives and judging on these smaller, lesser areas, um, how hurtful they can be and why we were commanded, stop it, don't do it. It's hurtful to hurt to unity. It's not good. We went through the reasons why not to do that. God has accepted them. God is the one who's going to be their judge. They serve another, not us. Really get that into our minds so that our, our posture is one of love and acceptance and being very, very careful in forming our opinions and judgments about others. Um, sometimes judging originates from thinking ill of other people, as I illustrated. Other times it stems from just you see someone doing something that you disagree with, but it's an insignificant area, and so you were trained differently, your, your previous church trained you differently, and you start to develop these negative attitudes towards them. I can't believe they're a Christian and do that, or I can't believe they're a Christian and they don't do that, or whatever it is. We do disagree on smaller areas. It's not that the Bible has nothing to say about these smaller areas. Of course it does. I mean, the Bible's a complete manual for life, right? But are these areas about how we dress really the major things that God wants us focusing on? There are principles in the Bible about how we should dress. If I were to throw it out to you as a congregation today and say, what does the Bible say about how we should dress? <laughs> Might be interesting, right, to get what you think about that. But hopefully at the top of the list would be modesty. 
What is modesty? Modesty is the expression of humility in the way we portray ourselves to others. So what does that mean? That means that we're not supposed to be like a neon sign saying, here I am, I am so gorgeous, I am so wonderful, look at these muscles. That's not how we're supposed to dress. Or look how rich and fancy I am. I come from an elite family, can't you see? Um, And I'm exaggerating on purpose. We're supposed to have modesty. We're supposed to be reflecting away from us to say other people are important. That doesn't mean we dress messy. That doesn't mean we can't have some flair and fashion. There's just a general principle there. But how do you spell that out in the way you dress? Someone may believe that, gee, that's a little bit borderline-ish there. And, you know, the generations disagree a little bit about that. But we can agree on the principle and then try to be patient with each other. How do you express that? Hopefully with the women talking to the women, the older women talking to the younger women, the older men talking to the younger men and saying, yeah, maybe you were a little bit too showing off there, you know. Or check your attitude. Uh, I don't want to tell you you shouldn't wear that kind of a thing, but think about why you were wearing such and such. That's a much superior way, don't you think, to deal with the principles that the Bible gives us for application rather than here's what you're allowed to wear and not wear, and if you wear this, you're a godly person. If you don't wear that, you're not a good person. And boy, those lists will have to change all the time, won't they? Um, Tattoos and women's head coverings. People have very strong opinions about, honestly, things that it's not all that important. Um, What version of the Bible are you reading this morning? Um, You know, tisk, tisk. You don't have the King James. You're just not as biblical. Um, I said that tongue-in-cheek in case someone quotes me wrongly. Or we've mentioned holiday celebrations or how you do your recreation. Yeah, we waste too much time. Uh, as Americans playing around. I agree with that, but your way of recreating may be a little different than mine. What really needs to be looked at is your heart, right? Why are you playing those games all the time when there's so many important things to do for Christ? And yet, I garden. You might think, that's a waste of time. You're going to plant something, Pastor Leek, it's going to die anyways. So why are you wasting time with that? And so we all have ways of resting. We have ways of enjoying life, and God has given these to us. How you parent, boy, that can be personal, can it? Are you a good parent or you bad parent? You do it this way or do it that way? We have great parenting classes here at Hope Bible Church, but we try to teach principles, not if you do this, this is the only right way, and if you do that, that's wrong all the time. What are we supposed to do in parenting? Teach, set an example, pray, guard our children from evil, train them, right? And then look at the scriptures and the principles that flow from that. Schooling choices is a huge, uh, ooh, that can be a big one, right? And, uh, you know, I was trained in the public schools through my whole life, really, until I went to seminary. Um, We chose to homeschool our children for the most part, but I was also a Christian school teacher employed by two different Christian schools um, you know, over 10 year, about 10 years of teaching. So I've had a lot of experience in all those arenas, and I see pluses and minuses in all of them. And the bottom line is parents are responsible for what happens in their own home, right? And parents have to uh, give their account to the Lord, and um, that's what God's going to ask in the end. And so parents have to 
choose and manage what they're going to do with their own children. These are all in a giant umbrella of Christian living areas we call the adiaphora. Remember that word? Areas of indifference. And we are not the first generation of Christians that's had to deal with this. Our issues may be different. Um, a lot of the styles of worship music might be in our generation, right, in the previous generation. But you look through church history, there were other things. Should there even be stained glass in a worship center? Some would view that more idolos- as idolatry. Others would say, no, it was a way of enhancing faith. And there were huge, sometimes violent revolts over something that was honestly a small area because they were not bowing down to those images. And they were not images of God. They were stories, Bible stories and things like that that were there. Um, Even Martin Luther had to go through that controversy during his time in the Reformation. So we want to try to keep these, these areas, we call them gray areas sometimes, but we want to try to keep them from rising to prominence because in God's word, they're not that high. They may be in your background and in your heart and in your emotions, but in God's word, they're just not that important. Sorry, they're just not. And you have to kind of learn to read the Bible the way it is really said. Remember what I said, if you're in the habit of making small things into big things, then you will also be in the habit of what? Making big things into what? Small things. It just happens. Because if you get bent out of shape on these small areas, how are you going to fight and die for the inerrancy of the Bible? the deity of Jesus Christ, the, uh, the sole authority of Scripture, the gospel, the solas of the Reformation. Those are things that someone holds a gun to my head, that's what I'm going to die for, right? You know, I'm just, I'm looking over at some of the security people so you'll know if you have to jump in front of me to take the bullet. I, I will be dying for that and then you will be dying for that also. So just so you know. It won't be for the smaller issues, I promise. Some Christians just that have developed well theologically have not developed well in applicationally of Scripture. And I don't say that to insult anyone. They just don't have the years of maturity yet to know that's important and that's not. This is heavier than this. It's okay to fellowship with the brethren here and to give a little bit. When we went out to California... 25 years ago. I'd come from the East Coast. I'd come from conservative churches. And we went out there to John MacArthur's church. Johnny Mac, say that nicely. That's a conservative church. And we went to church there, and there were guys there coming to church without a tie on. Not what I was used to. I'm not saying that's wrong. And they had flip-flops on and ponytails and tattoos and an earring here or there, and I'm looking at that like, and Sue and I are looking at it like, we're from the East Coast. This is the West Coast. Things are different here. And styles of clothing were very chic, you know. And we didn't, you know, we just look like normal, you know, Tom and Sue. And yet it's like you're going almost to Hollywood here, you know. And it was just an amazingly different culture. These people were taking notes of expository preaching. They were out evangelizing. They were loving the Lord every bit as much as we were, if not more. And we were sort of like, I kind of knew in my mind they weren't important. I'd already learned that in my Christian life, that these things are not important. But I saw it. I saw a whole group of people that looked a lot different than us, and not just in one area. I mean, in all kinds of different ways. Ross knows what I'm talking about. Just everybody does their own thing out there, right? 
And, and yet their heart, if you've, I'm not, if you've been to California, you know what I'm talking about. The West Coast is not the East Coast. The Christian culture there is very different than the Christian culture here. And that's what it is. It's a culture. And people express it differently. And that's okay. It's about their heart for the main things. And they made the main things the main things. And I saw it, and I was like, this is really, really neat. This is really cool. And we, we kind of learned from that. We kind of took a step forward, I think, in our, our judgment abilities to see what was important and what was not. So again, I say, those who make a big deal out of little things invariably are going to make a lesser deal out of big things. That's why I linger on it, because we don't want splitting up our church, our relationships, our friendships, our fellowships, getting along in a small group, wherever your point of contention is, because of these issues. In a church that's growing to be our size, we're somewhere around 500 people, we don't get to see everybody these days, but we're large enough now that you can say, you know what, I like Hope Bible Church, but there are folks there that I just don't fit in with them, and so I'm going to avoid them. And you know what I'm talking about, because some of you are doing this, and you're treading in little areas, and you're finding your people, and that's good because it meets the needs of you and your family. Can I say something very radical to you? You should be able to fellowship with any member in this church, any member. If they're not under church, if, if they're supposed to be under church discipline, then go through the steps of church discipline, and, and, make sh- and don't run to the elders. Do what you're supposed to do, right? Start with a personal confrontation, right? You know why some people don't do that? Because they don't want to find out that they were wrong. I confronted them and I realized that I was the one being petty. Uh Uh-oh, right? That's what you find out in step one. Pastor Plumley always says church discipline is going on all the time in our church. We just don't see most of it. It's the step number one, right? Hey, brother, hey, sister, I saw you doing such and such. I think that's a sin. And, and if they look at you like, why would that be a sin? You know you're going to be in a great conversation now, right? Because you might be stepping into the area of adiaphora, and you're just looking at the same application differently. Maybe not. Maybe you've uncovered something, and you can rescue their soul, and your loving and humble act will rescue them. That's great. But maybe you're entering into something that you, you're going to learn something from as well. You go through step one, then you go to step two. You know the Matthew 18 uh, steps that you're supposed to do before it gets to the elders. If they're a member here in good standing, you must assume that you can have fellowship with them as a brother and sister in Christ. You can have them in your home, I mean, when the virus dies out, and you can have them at your table, and you can enjoy them as a brother and sister in Christ, fully accepting them. Why? Echoing Romans 14, because God has accepted them. Amen? Amen. That's what we were hopefully supposed to have learned from this series. And you can multiply how this applies. So many different areas. I don't mean to pick on certain applications. Again, if you think, why is Pastor Lake bringing that out as an example and not that? I don't know. Um, But it applies in areas that I have not mentioned as well. Now, We ended last time talking about mistakes we make in application of the Bible. We make mistakes in application, and we don't want to do that. We do want to learn to apply the Bible. We need to do more than read the Bible. We also have to learn to interpret the Bible. By the way, go to good Bible courses that we have 
here at church and learn to interpret Scripture in context. And if you do that, then you interpret correctly. It's got a historical context. It has a, uh, we need to learn the customs, the word usage. Become better skilled in that. You don't have to become an expert, but become better in it. Now you interpret more accurately, and that will lead to better what? Applications, right? It's funny, sometimes people make really good applications from the Bible, from the wrong Bible text. <laughs> and you're like, you know, that was a, that's a really good application, but I don't think that verse is talking about that. And um, so I think, you know, God forgives that because at least you got the right application, right? But it would be better that we're kind of interpreting and applying consistently because that way people can learn from us better how to apply the word. Three mistakes we talked about in Bible application last time. I'll just do this still by review. The first is that we add human command. I'm sorry, I already said the first one, and that is we make a big deal out of little things. When we look at the passage, we focus on the incidentals, what's not really the important part of the application, and we make it into the important part of the application. We make a big deal out of little things. That was the first interpretive error. The second is we add human commandments to God's commands. Remember, this was the Pharisee's method. The Pharisees' motive, of course, was wrong, too, because the Lord Jesus exposed them as hypocrites. They, they wanted to be seen as righteous before men. But the idea of wanting to protect God's commandments from being disobeyed is not necessarily wrong. But what the Pharisees would do is say, look, because these are God's commandments, we're going to add to God's commandments, and we're going to surround them with our own rules. And if you keep our rules, then we know you'll never disobey God's commandments. Boy, that sounds holy and pious, but it's wrong. It's wrong because it takes away from the freedom and latitude that our very wise God has given to us in living the Christian life. The Christian life is not all about sacrifice. And if our kids growing up in the church only learn, don't do this, don't do that, they're not going to like the Christian life. They have to also learn that the Christian life is a freeing empowering kind of experience to go and be able to do almost anything with the greatest amount of vigor and joy and confidence and optimism in life. Yes, there are things that are no-nos. <laughs> yes, there are commands in the Bible, and we do need to emphasize those. But the Christian life has a robust uh, freedom of latitude that we need to make sure the next generation knows and experiences. And so it's not wise to add commands to God. It's just not wise. So we don't want to do that. I'll, you know, one example is over alcoholic drinking. The Bible's command is clear. Do not get drunk. And anyone who gets drunk is a fool. I mean, we could just add verses to that. That's Ephesians 5.18. But it doesn't say don't drink. And, and some would say, yes, but if you don't drink, then you can never get drunk. That's true. And some would say, but if you start to do this, it could lead to a slippery slope, and someone could fall into sin. That is also true. But that's true of every area of living the Christian life. If you live it in excess, if you eat ice cream, is that sin? <laughs> Depends on the flavor. How big the bowl is. It can become sin, right? Of course it can. Um, if we eat in excess, um, anything done in excess like that can become sin.
but God knows what he has given to us for enjoyment, and uh, we're not supposed to have impaired speech or thinking or any of that. Um, We let God's word and its wisdom stand on its own while we guard people against sinful behavior. If you've grown up in a home where alcohol has destroyed the home, we completely understand why you would want to totally abstain. In fact, I would, I would uh, not want to drink around you. If you've seen the destructiveness of alcohol in the home, you understand the cautions being made for that. But we still need to make sure that as we teach more broadly that we teach what God has said. Uh, another interpretive mistake, still by way of review, is that we turn biblical principles into commandments. I love the fact that the Bible has all kinds of principles. It's so wonderful to be reading Scripture and studying in small group or listening to a sermon, and you come across a principle, and you're like, wow, I don't know why that didn't dawn on me before. I'm so excited about learning that, and you want to apply it. Praise God. That's the Holy Spirit working inside of you and showing you a principle, and it is a wonderful thing. Um, But don't turn it into an absolute commandment for every single situation. Um, one of, the, uh, one of the principles of Scripture is this. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? Profitable. I'm allowed to do this, and I'm allowed to do that. And this is for you young people that have been listening to only what you want to hear from Pastor Leek's messages. Hey, Ma, hey, Dad, Pastor Leek said I'm allowed to do anything, anything. No, (laughs) it's not what I said. All things are lawful but not profitable. You should be trying to figure out as a younger person, how can I best live my life? How can I maximize it for Jesus Christ and his kingdom, right? It goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to say, I will not be mastered by anything. I don't want anything to take over control of my life except, of course, for my true master, of whom I am his servant and slave, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We don't want to take beautiful principles given in the Bible and twist them into controlling commandments because that would be to twist it. Another way to put it is we don't want to be more conservative than God is. (laughs) I'm a conservative Christian. What kind of conservative Christian? I'm so conservative, I'm more conservative than God. Oh, did you, hear, did you hear what you just said? <laughs> that doesn't sound all that wise. Uh, I, I want to be conservative in the areas God says to be conservative in. Um, I do. And I consider myself a conservative Christian. Uh, but um, we need to let God's word speak as it speaks. Now, an, a word of caution here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. What does he mean by flesh? He means your sinful disposition, right? You've been born again, so you have a new nature in Christ, but there still remains that remnant, rebellious nature that's there. I don't even want to call it a nature, a tendency, where you, uh, you just kind of want to do what you want to do. And Paul says, yes, in Christ you've been given these freedoms but don't take that freedom and say, aha, 
Now I have the opportunity to go do whatever I want to in my flesh. I'm going to play my games for five hours at home, and I'm going to go out to every party I want to. No, you, you missed why you were given the freedom. He goes on and he says, but through love serve one another. You were, in other words, you were given these freedoms so you could say, wow, I'm allowed to go do as I want to do now. And you know what I want to do? I want to love people. I want to find people who have need, and in that love, I want to serve them. Now, that's the application God wants you to go do. That's the big thing. That's the main thing. I want to find someone in need, find find someone who's discouraged, find someone who's lonely, find a need that I can meet, find some way of helping in church, and I want to fill that in. Why? Because that's that's me taking the, the time and the freedom that I have and saying no to me, and saying what? Yes to them. That's love. So I'm, I, ha- I could just go say, hey, today is all about me. Me and more of me. And then tomorrow, a bunch more of me. But then we're getting into turning our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, right? And we're commanded not to do that. So we want in love to serve. So knowing how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who voluntarily picked up his cross and went to Calvary to suffer, bleed, and die for us, that's the image of living the Christian life. Now that I've saved you from eternal damnation, if you want to be one of my followers, pick up your cross daily and come after me, die to yourself, and I'll show you how to live the Christian life. And it'll be about saying no to you, and it'll be about saying yes to me, Jesus said. And in the midst of that, you will find love, and you will find joy, and you will find power for your Christian life, and you'll find fullness of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? You will be so excited about living, you won't even need a law. You won't need a list of commandments. You'll have the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you'll have the second greatest commandment, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And you will need no other law than that. You'll live all your life with those two commandments, and they will will encompass all of your life, your religious life towards God, the way you practice towards other people. And you'll be so excited with that. You won't need a list of do's and don'ts and you're not allowed to wear those pants to Sunday school and you're not allowed to dance that way in front of someone and all the rest of that. Do you see how Christian churches and Christian denominations and Christian schools and movements can be squelched by not understanding the proper Christian life and saying because because we don't really experience and understand the proper Christian life, we're going to define it with a bunch of rules and reduce it down to that We'll all feel comfortable with one another. We'll all get along and agree on the small areas, and we'll watch out to make sure nobody deviates. We'll get the police out there. Aha, you know, you're not allowed to do that. We caught you. Oh, you, you in the back. Yeah, you can't sing that way in church. No, no. That was too many clapping on the hand. Beat the drum three times, and that's it. The fourth is sin. It's that fourth beat that's a sin. I'm being funny to make a point. How do you 
how do you really draw the line on something like that anyway, is the point. Oh, that just kills Christian living. You know, in, in reacting against a, a world, a church that has gone worldly, that has loved sinful things and said, hey, any, any practice of any sexual sin, come on in the church. We're tolerant and we're loving. And you have, you have this liberal church that has just killed their churches through worldliness and disobeying the clear commandments of God. And then you have the conservative church that runs over to the other side and kills Christian living by overreacting. Do you see that? Do you see that? Because that's our blind side. And you've got to see that. You have to understand that. Otherwise, either way, you can fall into a ditch, guys. You could fall into a ditch and miss it either way. You could be a Sadducee. And you remember the joke on that. And they were sad, you see, because they were Sadducees. Ha, 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 ha. Or you can be a Pharisee and fall over there and make too many rules. But Jesus was not in either camp, was he? No, he was, he was where we need to be. We need to line up behind him and follow him. And what was he doing? Oh, yeah. In his footsteps, it leads to the cross of Christ. I haven't even got to my message. This is not fair. I just looked up. I only have seven minutes left. Is that real? Okay. This was my intro. This has never happened to me before. I don't know. I'm on page four. All right. Well, that's it in a nutshell from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. Today, or more likely next week, we transition to teaching us how to judge rightly. Oh, this is weird. Today we're going to consider the other side of judging. The first three messages, or now four, could be expressed with the words of Romans 14, 13, and indeed I entitled it that, let us not judge one another anymore. The second half of this series, if I can put it that way, also can follow the words of a commandment in the Bible, and put down John chapter 7 and verse 24, and it's only part of that verse, and it is these words here, judge with righteous judgment. That's, a, that's an amazing verse. If anyone ever quotes to you Matthew chapter 7 that says, do not judge lest you be judged, affirm that person and say, you know right, you're right, Jesus did say that. And then take them to John 7, and that's the way I remember it, Matthew 7, John 7. Take them to John 7, and then it's just, you know, a few verses down, and then show them and ask them, what do you think about this one? It says, judge with righteous judgment. What do you think about that one? Well, that's what we want to consider. What does that actually mean? Because we are at a time, in at least our society is thinking a lot about it, what does that even mean? If we're going to go ahead forward and we're going to make a judgment and we're going to judge, what does that even look like? Do people even know? A lot of what I'm seeing is a rush to judgment or is a wrong standard of judging or is a prejudicial kind of judging. And we need to know what is the right way to judge because actually judging is a very tricky business. It's very, very difficult. Only the most astute people in society are supposed to arise to the status of something that we call a judge. 
my, my dad, his name was Woodrow Wilson, uh, Woodrow Wilson Leak, um, he served in the United States State Department for years and years, and when he had his massive heart attack in Nigeria, where he was serving, uh, he should have died from that. He didn't. God preserved his life, came back to the States. He was done with his foreign service because his heart was just too weak for the rest of his life. And so they uh, had him serve uh, administratively at the State Department. That's how we got here in Maryland, grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. But as he uh, finished even that segment of his career, he was, uh, he was promoted to be a judge, one of only three judges in the entire State Department. And he was given a very prestigious position to judge internal disagreements and affairs within the State Department and solve problems from among thousands and thousands of people there. And he, he had that position, had that plaque. And to be able to get to that point, people have to believe you're a very balanced, careful, unprejudiced thinker, Right? If people think like, oh, I don't know, that person's got a lot you know, on this side or that side, they're just not going to trust that kind of a person. Being a judge is a very difficult thing, and yet you and I engage in some measure of judging other people almost every single day. And because of that, it's very dangerous. It can lead to all kinds of problems, and it often does. So I want, from Scripture, to teach you how to judge rightly. I don't want to just say, don't judge. I want you to have the principles to know, okay, I am actually going to judge and I'm commanded to judge. How do I do this rightly? And you know some of it already. I'm sure you do. You, I could immediately ask you, should we rush to judgment? And you would say, no, 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 that's wrong. I, I would say, is it important to gather your facts before you form your opinion? And you would immediately say, what? Yes. So we know some of those principles are important, but we want to kind of go through this more thoroughly. As I said, the Bible does at times tell us it is important to judge rightly. If we were not able to judge rightly, we would not be able to tell the difference between right and wrong. We would be like the world. We would be calling wrong things right. And then they look at right things in the church and they go, you guys are wrong. And we're like, what is wrong with these people? Because they, they can't discern, they can't judge, they can't distinguish between what's actually right and what's wrong? And if we were not able to judge, we would not be able to do what 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 commands us to do, and that is to discern the difference between truth and what? Error. What is true and what is an error? John wrote in 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, testing the spirits doesn't mean have a seance, doesn't mean do some voodoo. It means exactly what he writes in that context in 1 John 4, and that is he gives a standard, anyone who confesses that Jesus the Messiah has come in the flesh is from God, and the one who does not confess that is not from God. If you believe that the eternal God became a human being, then the spirit inside of you is from God. And if you deny that doctrine, then you're basically, he said, you're a cult. You're outside the realm of proper Christian teaching. And whatever else you say, we're not going to listen to you because yours is the spirit of error. Well, how do you come to that accurate judgment? How can you be able to do that? And the answer is you can only do that 
if you are able to judge rightly and wrongly. And so we're going to get into that next time. Now I want to close, I'm closing, I want to close by just giving you a couple of verses that show you that God does want us to judge. And I mentioned one of them to you already in John 7:24, but I want to read the rest of that. This is in a debate uh, that Jesus was having with the, Jew, the Jews. And um, in John 7, it's a fascinating chapter because there's a lot of debate the Jews are having with each other in a temple scene in Jerusalem. And the debate is over, is Jesus really the Messiah or not? And evidence is being batted back and forth. And Jesus said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Don't judge according to appearance. It may look bad. It may look this way. That's too shallow. We have a saying, don't judge a book by what? It's cover, right? Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. How am I going to do that? There's got to be a righteous standard that I can, I can take whatever I'm judging and put it up against that standard, and now I can say, okay, I can see whether that's good or not. That's the way to judge. That's John 7, 24. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul is uh, talking about church discipline. And the church at Corinth had accepted a man who was involved in direct sexual sin. And uh, the Corinthian church was the first liberal church, and they were like very proud of how tolerant they were, allowing this guy to come in and continue to fellowship and be in their congregation. And Paul writes them and says, you need to remove that man in a formal church discipline. You need to remove him. I have judged him already. That's a violation of God's commandments. He's unrepentant. He's going to spread his influence in the church, and, he, and that influence is going to be a sinful influence in the church. Uh, exercise church discipline. I'm summarizing uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But then in verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What does he mean by outsiders? It's not my job to judge what people are doing in society. As an apostle of Jesus, that's not my role. That's not my job. By the way, that's not our job in church either. We're not set up in this world to be the judge of American society. God's going to do that. We could certainly, we could certainly preach against the sins in, in uh, American society, and we should. We should be a good e example where they fail and all of that. But we were not put into this society or German society or British society or some Nigerian society or wherever it might be. We were not put there to act as their judge. That's what he's saying. What have I to do with judging outsiders? And then he says, do you not judge those who are within? And he means within the church. Aren't you doing that? That is your role. You are supposed to judge the actions and the attitudes and the words of people that are inside the church. That is your role. And then he says, remove that wicked man from amongst yourselves. So he had to get to a point of repentance before he would be allowed back into the community of believers. So we are to judge. We are to discern. We're just supposed to not do it according to appearance. We're not to do it in a shallow way. We are to have a righteous standard by which we do it. Indeed, the Bible explains quite 
a bit about judging rightly. And again, I say, since the topic is one so many are riveted on now, I think it's a good time to try to really focus on what makes a good judgment, what makes a bad judgment, and be very, very careful, not just in terms of the issues in society, but just in dealing with each other, in dealing with responses to a post someone puts out or something you overhear about this person or something that arises in your small group or you hear about a church leader or you read about this person in the news or something like that. Hold your horses, (laughs) slow down, form your opinions carefully and slowly, be very careful about voicing them because we don't want to make a travesty out of justice in the name of justice. When you hear a report about somebody else, when someone says something negative about someone else or something has been communicated to you somehow and it's negative about somebody else, ask yourself this question as we close. Do you believe it? Do you believe the report? Or, all right, let me ask it this way. Do you half believe it? Do you believe a man is guilty until he's proven innocent? Or do you believe a person is innocent until proven guilty? Well, that's an important, that's an important statement, isn't it? So anyways, let's uh, bow and pray. And I still, I know I went over a little bit. I'd like Elias to come back up and let's and have a closing hymn, but we'll just pray. Father, forgive uh, my handling of the time this morning and please uh, help us to delve more deeply into the subject, Lord, in the weeks to come and to uh, train our thinking to follow after the way you judge for you are the perfect judge. Help us to see how you do it. Help us to study a little bit about your law, a little bit about future judgment and God help us to see this as an expression of righteousness and love that we have towards one another. Pray it in your mighty name, amen.